For more than a decade, Tracy Moore has been the television journalist and host of City Line, one of Canada's most influential lifestyle programs, also broadcasted to 70-plus million American homes daily. An award-nominated TV host, Tracy shares the best style trends, cooks up the greatest new recipes, and sizes up the latest fashions five days a week. Not only a TV host, Tracy is a positive role model whom uses her platform to accelerate her voice on taboo conversations such as race, gender, body positivity, and selflessly turns the volume up to stand up and support her community. Listen, as one of Canada's most influential television hosts keeps it real about her journey and encourages you to believe in yours. Growing up, I always want to see more people who look like me that were successful. Can I afford to take a risk to follow my dreams? We are excited to bring you the Make Your Mark podcast, hosted by philanthropist Kim Niles. The Make Your Mark podcast allows you to hear personal stories of resilience by professionals and public figures of color. Our guests unapologetically share their triumphs, lessons learned, and how they found balance in their experiences. Tune in to equip yourself with strategies and coping mechanisms on how to boldly make your mark. Subscribe and listen now. Hello, Tracy. Welcome to the show. It's so good to be here. And I listen, I really appreciate you letting us sort of um, move the date back a little bit because I think, you know, I was having a hard week. You were having a hard week. Collectively, Black communities were having hard weeks. Yes. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you being okay with that. But I'm happy to be, I'm happy to be here finally. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, first and foremost, for the 16 years of representation letting us all know that it is possible having you on such a big platform across Canada and the U.S. And I'm not sure if the show has gone any further yet, but being the host of City Line and having us look up to you literally has been a blessing to so many, many that you probably don't even realize that you touch. So thank you so much for your work. And as we get into it now, I would love for you to tell our viewers about your journey into becoming a journalist. It has been a circuitous route and I'd have to go all the way back to high school. So I'm in grade 11 and I absolutely love presenting and I'm focused all my independent study um, units. I focus on African Canadian history and African American history and Caribbean history because I felt this need and this urgency to teach myself about our people. We were not a part of the curriculum at all. And so I took great pride in coming in and presenting any of my independent study units to the class, like you do presentations in high school. And my, there's one teacher in particular, Miss Holding. Um, she is an English teacher, was an English teacher. She's retired now, but she loved the fact that I love to present and would invite other classes in to listen to my presentations. Hello, Nerdsville. But I was so happy to present my projects. 
and I love to read and I love to write. And so at some point she said, do you know what you're going to do? And I said, I have no idea. I like to read and I like to write. Does that mean I have to become a novelist? And she said, no. She said, you could be a journalist. You can be a politician. You can be a lawyer. And I said, oh, and she said, you know, I suggest you go and do a general arts degree in university um, sort of feel your way around and see what you want to go towards. But she goes, I would suggest political science. And uh, she said, I would love to use my connections to get you into University of Toronto. And I was like, no, I, I'm, I'm leaving Toronto. Like I knew nothing about university outside of Ontario. I knew no, but nobody that went to university outside of Ontario, barely knew anybody that went to university in Ontario uh, and, uh, I decided to apply to McGill and I got into McGill cause I had read it was like the best university in the country. So I got in there and the, my very first year I started volunteering at the campus radio station and that was it. That was the bug. That was the, I loved it. I was not good at it. I didn't know what I was doing, uh, but I loved it. And so I, I started really exploring this radio thing and, and that was how I decided, okay, it's going to be journalism. I went on to do my master's in journalism at Western for a year. And then at the end of the program, they put you in an internship. My internship was in uh, the CTV newsroom. I was timid and quiet and overwhelmed. I found the whole thing daunting and it was an awful experience. And I had to sort of get some tough love from a best friend before I could flip that experience into something valuable. And, uh, you know, I will save that story for a little bit later when we talk about a time that you ever wanted to give up, because I definitely thought I just wasn't meant for this industry until I sort of changed my way of thinking about it. Um, I, I, I changed my attitude. I started introducing myself to people. And listen, it's overwhelming when you are a person of color, when you are a black person, when you are a woman and you don't see yourself reflected anywhere. You really have to talk yourself up. You have to big yourself up constantly. And so I had to learn how to do that and then just be in these spaces and be as authentic as I can in these spaces and introduce people to who I am and that led to my first proper job in journalism. And it was assigning the camera crews at CBC News. And I was terrible at that too. I would, I would say to the guys, like, I am so sorry. And I would bring them like homemade snacks. And I, I, I wrote them all personal Christmas cards. I was like, please just bear with me. Some of them took mercy upon me and had pity on me. Some of them just couldn't stand me. Um, and I did that for six months and then I worked to get myself into the newsroom, had to start on the very bottom, even though I had a master's degree and I begged, borrowed, they didn't steal, but every single day I was pitching a story idea every single day to the point where I was annoying to the local news desk. They're like, who is this more tea? Cause I was, that, those were my, uh, that's my username. And I said, it's me. And they said, oh, like, go away. And, uh, and I was like, I'm not going anywhere. I begged them to put me in a camera course. They taught me how to shoot the camera and then continued to ignore me. And then 9-11 happened and everyone pushed their sleeves up and they were out the door. And the local news, they were looking around, looking around. They're like, we need somebody to go to the U.S. consulate. And I said, I'll go. And they said, 
okay, go to the locker room, get the keys. And that was my first day being a reporter on air. And after that, they knew I could do it. So they would get me to go in and do stories every now and again. And then they hired me to be a a VJ on uh, the CBC News. And that is how I started my career in journalism. So 911 was like your first like day on the job. That was my first day in front of the camera. Before that, I had been doing research for reporters. I had been chase, uh, chase producing on the weekend news desk. Um, I had been writing copy. I've been doing everything but reporting. And that was my first day reporting. And it's, it's crazy right now we're going through a pandemic and there's so much chaos happening in the world. And, you know, just offline, I was having a chat and saying like, there's so much good that's also coming out of this new season that we're in. Although it feels stifling, although it feels hard, there's so much good, very similar to that situation uh, with 9-11 for yourself. Absolutely. And it, it it's, it's kind of the world of news reporting that huge calamities, which are awful and devastating, are also career starters. They are. SARS was a career starter for somebody. Uh, you know, Rob Ford, the mayor, was a career starter for many journalists in Toronto. So, yeah, terrible things are happening and your career is being built. That's the that's sort of the, the, the ridiculousness of the whole thing. But that day got me out there. And um, and then after that, it just became my thing. I became a reporter and I worked really, really hard at it. When you reflect back now as to being a reporter versus now uh TV host of your own show, what's the, what, what has that been that shift for you? It was a very big shift and it was not a shift that I was willing to acknowledge that was necessarily for me. Um, what, uh, what happened was I was all like, I am going to be Diane Sawyer. I am going to be hosting 2020 and I'm going to be working on corporate malfeasance and I'm going to do foreign war correspondence. I had these ideas, right? And it was going to be news. And part of the reason why I was so stuck with this idea of news is because I had um, twist extensions because I found it was a professional way for me to stay true to the natural texture of my hair. Um, but, you know, have a style that was deemed professional or so I thought. And everyone who saw me wanted to put me in entertainment. They were like, no, you need to be doing like, you should much music. Like you should be doing entertainment. Like, look at you. And I was like, no, no, no. I can report on the tax season and the budget just because I have this hair doesn't mean I need to be singing and dancing. And I was very much pushing against this idea that I had to be a certain thing because I was black and I look funky. I still know the news. That's my training as a journalist. So when City Line came around, I was pregnant with my first child. I was a live reporter for Breakfast Television. I liked my job. I thought I was headed to New York. I had an agent in New York that had scored me interviews at ABC and NBC and CNN. And ABC had actually put in a job offer in the UK. I got a job offer in London to be an ABC nightly news correspondent. And the whole thing fell through. So I was on that road. I knew there was going to be another offer uh, coming my way because I had met all of the brass at ABC and they, they loved me. And here I am pregnant with my first child and married. And 
the news director at City TV took me aside and I'm trying to file for the 12 o'clock news. So I'm sort of like, the timing's not great. And she said, you know, the host of City Line is leaving because Rogers had been sold and part of it went to CTV and part of it went to, sorry, City TV had been sold. Part of it went to CTV, Bell, uh, part of it went to Rogers. And um, we were going to be keeping City Line, but losing the host. And I said, yes, I know. And I'm looking at my clock, like, i got to get back to my story. And she's like, well, we're going to be having auditions for a new host. And I said, yeah, I know. It's very exciting. And, uh, and she looked at me and she's like, you know, we're doing these auditions during your maternity leave. And I said, mm-hmm. I'm still not getting it because I'm like, I'm going to be Diane Sawyer. And she said, I think you should audition. And I said, why? And then I realized, like, that's the wrong answer. So I said, okay. <laughs> she said, okay, so you're into it. And I'm like, okay. And uh, I went home and I said to my husband, you know, you know, they're looking for a new city line host. And he said, yeah. And I said, my news director asked me to audition. And he did a complete 180. He was like, this is a great opportunity. He goes, think about it. You would be in lifestyle. He's like, this is our life now. We just bought our first house. We don't have a lot of money. We're trying to make meals on a budget. Like he was selling it hard. And I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He got me hype. And so I was like, okay, let me open, like, let me take the blinders off and let me look at this opportunity. And if it goes great, great. But if it doesn't, whatever. And at the same time I was auditioning for City Line, I was still in touch with my agents. I was still, you know, fielding opportunities. I went to a journalism conference in Chicago when my baby was three months old. I was delusional. Like I was like, I am doing or very driven, one or the other. And, uh, and I ended up getting the City Line gig. The more I auditioned, the more I thought this is a really good fit with me. And I can still be serious, but I can also make room for the goofy, fun part of me. Like there's a part of me that exists that I've sort of been stomping out in the professional world because when you're a reporter, you're playing the role of reporter. Um, and so I could let that go. The transition, Kim, was huge. And the learning curve was huge. And I did not understand what I was up against. I didn't understand that I was going from reporting a story to having people say, what does your husband do? Where did you get that skirt? And how are you raising your children? What do you cook on a week? Like it, I was the story all of a sudden, and I was not prepared for that. And I didn't know how to act or how to be. So I had to really figure out not only the format of the show and the experts of the show, because I wasn't a regular viewer before I started working on the show. I also had to figure out who am I within the context of this show. And it took me a long time, like a year and a half, two years before I finally felt like, okay, I know where the washrooms are. I know who the people are. I can maybe, I can maybe do this. Um, and I made a lot of mistakes on air and, uh, and the public just kind of had to, to, to deal with to deal with me because I had to learn, you know, it's like trial in front of this entire national audience. Uh, but yeah, that was the transition. Wow. What a journey. What would you say your biggest accomplishment has been? In life or on the show? I would say in life. In life, I think it's figuring out that, um, the voice that I have is, is valid even though I've already, I've always known that I was very good about compartmentalizing. So 
in my communities with my people, um, I can push forward the sort of change I would love to see in the world. And I didn't necessarily think that I could actually funnel that into my job as well. You know, I came into journalism to begin with to change the world and I wanted to help our community and I wanted to lift us up. And I became very disillusioned realizing that one little reporter at one station wasn't necessarily going to be able to like blow the, this idea of inequality open. And then I came to City Line and thought, well, now I have even less of a chance. And that was not true. Me figuring out that this platform is actually a perfect platform for me to express kindness, understanding, educate, um, lead, all of those things. I'm, I'm very thankful I finally realized that this is the place I'm supposed to be in to be doing that work. And that's been a great accomplishment for me because I feel that the benefits are going to last long beyond me lasting. I want to leave something behind that is going to help and lift when I'm gone. Because I'm always thinking about when I'm gone. It's not all about me. It's what's being put in place that this keeps going on, you know, into perpetuity. How long did it take you to get to this place? A long time. Because I think that it's always been, you know, I've always had an activist side of me, you know, ever since I would say grade nine, when I came to high school and I was like, there's no Caribbean association. Let's start a Caribbean association. Like, come on. And we need an environmental club. I'm going to start the environmental club. Um, And I remember having like meeting my girlfriends in grade 10 and this Guyanese woman who became my best friend for many years. And she was like, you're Tracy Moore. I thought Tracy Moore was white. Everyone's talking about Tracy Moore and she's running for student council and she's starting the environmental club. And I'm like, no, that's me, girl. That's me. <laughs> so I can do all the things. So I've always had, had that um, side of me. And uh, I just did not know how to fully be me within the format of City Line. Because it wasn't a show that I created and it wasn't a show that I had any hand in developing. And so I felt that the mandate was for me to fit into what they already had. And it took me many years to realize that what I was adding to the show um, was, was value. You know, like we can actually, we can actually take the good bones of this and we can we can throw in the essence of who I am and, and we can actually give it even more layers and multitudes. So it's been a very incremental process, I think, to get there. Uh, but yeah, we're here. It's almost like, you know, with a show on such a platform that you, 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 jump, you jumped into, essentially, you f- I could see how you could feel that you had to jump into that superhero suit and just kind of mask yourself to fit what you believe people were looking to see. How much courage did it take when you figured out, you know what? I could actually just be myself. It's like dribs and drabs. Cause I would say most people um, that are from a marginalized group go to work, understanding that they're going to live a double life. And so I had that same understanding. My mom had that understanding. My dad had that understanding. My sister has that understanding. That's just the, that's just our reality. 
So we're going to go to work. And when something like, you know, the OJ Simpson trial or Michael Jackson's shenanigans or a shooting, you know, in some area of the city, when people are discussing those things and I put my head down, I'm not going to give my real opinion. Um, I'm just going to let them say what they need to say and hopefully like not too many microaggressions like hang off of me that day. Um, So what I found was that the more I was real about who I was, the more I, the audience was able to attach. And so it was like the opposite of what I thought. So when I said, you know, I actually like, I, I'm not, I'm messing up every single recipe that we talk about on city line. Like I'm not doing it guys. My husband cooks. They were like, Oh yeah. Okay. That's cool. Or it was, you know, I'm wearing double spangs because I just had my second baby and I don't feel comfortable not showing up without a lot of shapewear. They're like, Oh my God. Yeah. I'm in the same situation. Like I get that. So it was almost that positive feedback loop of getting folks saying, yeah, I appreciate that you said that, or that, you know, you admitted that you didn't know what that was on TV, or you admitted that you don't have that altogether, and that you've set the bar very low for yourself with this juggling of, of, of work and, and family, because that's all you can manage, or that you've said, screw balance, I'm not trying to balance anything, I'm going to fail in some parts of my life, and that's the life I'm going to live. Um, and so that started to be, it, that was sort of encouraging. And I think that that also helped to boost my confidence and, and it helped me to understand that the only thing I could actually offer the show is who I really am. That's the only thing I'm an expert in. So it took a long time to teach me that. Uh, but when I got there, my goodness, it's so liberating, it's so liberating to be able to just show up and be yourself. And then last year, you know, even though we were sort of creeping into a lot of serious discussions on City Line that weren't really happening on daytime television, last year the whole thing blew open. So it's not just I'm a woman that is a working woman and a, you know, a daughter to seniors and a wife and a mom. Um, I'm also Black. And so let's actually talk about that experience because we tipped our toe into it. But now it was like, no, we're talking about all of who Tracy is. And that has been a tough pill for some people to swallow. Um, but that's who I am, right? That's It's all part of my identity. I can't separate it. I can't compartmentalize it. That's the space I occupy. And I would say, Tracy, what is so refreshing about specifically your social media page is how authentic you say to, you stay to who you are. And I would say within the last year, I've also seen more of that come out as well, which is, it's it must be liberating, but it's also so inspiring for people looking on at your page and just say, you know what? Like, I don't have to put up all these fake pictures and all these fake moods and be like, oh my God, it's a bright sunny day today. And it's like, no, I actually don't feel like it. <laughs> right? Yeah, like there's something so amazing about being able to say this moment sucks. That's okay. I'm going to get through it, but I don't feel good right now. Or I'm, you know, I've had to contract out work for my brain. Like I need a therapist. I need people to talk to about this. I'm not, I'm not managing. I'm not handling it. Okay. Or my kids are not okay. And that's bothering me as a mom. I just think we need, we need more of that. And, you know, I also have beautiful filtered pics from vacations that are gorgeous too, but 
it, that's life. We have these highlight moments and we have these moments where we're struggling. And so I just try and put it all out there. Taking it back a little bit, what mm-hmm. is the day of a TV host look like? Like we see you show up on screen, everything looks so pretty, but what does the behind the scenes look like? So these days it looks a lot differently than it looked before COVID because before COVID it was a uh, five or four forty-five a.m. wake up. I was in the gym by six, um, there till seven, walk to work, sort of do whatever prep I need to do before hair and makeup at eight, uh, get out to take pictures with the audience at nine thirty, start taping the show at ten thirty, then production meetings after the show. And whatever events I had to host or go to and then home by like, let's say, like three, four o'clock. Usually I was home. I could pick up the kids from school um, or come home like just after them. So now I get up between five and five thirty. I go beg with myself to go work out in the basement. (laughs) Oh, oh boy. Like I I'm almost like shocked because I always thought to myself. If I hope this never happens, but if I ever had to go to jail, I would be so focused on the workout. I thought I was that person. I'm going to be so buff. Like I am going to work out. I don't know anymore, Kim. Would I be that person? Because right now we can't go outside and I'm having a hard time finding the motivation. So one thing I do every day is I move, even if it's my 20 minute physio routine, because I had a bad fall last year before we went into lockdown. I move every morning, but it's hard. I'm not going to lie. I used to look forward to it. Now I'm on my own. I don't have my trainer with me. I don't have my gym family that were very like, I love those guys. So, um, so I go downstairs, I give myself a cutoff at seven seven o'clock, take a shower, go upstairs, make the kids breakfast or wake the boy up. He's 13. So usually I'm waking him up around seven 30. Um, feed the dog, feed the kids. Then I go meditate. They go walk the dog. My husband wakes up and starts making their snacks. There's 7,000 snacks and lunches for the day. So he makes them all and puts them out on the table so they don't disturb him because he's got to work from home too. And then at nine o'clock, I go into hair and makeup, which is my basement washroom. I do my hair and makeup (laughs) while my daughter is in school, also in the basement. And my son is in school in the kitchen. And then around uh, 10 o'clock, I jump in a cab. I go to City Line. I drink uh, my coffee and read a like either the scripts for the day and the booking sheets for the day, or I read a novel if I'm just feeling like it, because I now all of a sudden have creeping anxiety. So I have to do all these things to try and calm myself before the show. Uh, chat with a bit of the crew. There's there's three or four of us there in studio. Um, we're all sort of socially distanced and in masks. Mic myself up, put my IFB on, and start doing the show around 11.15. And then I'm home by 2, sometimes 1.30. I have meetings in the afternoon. And then it's me and the kids and, and Leo. Leo usually works till like 5, 5.30, but it's me and the kids. Like, they go walk the dog again at 3.30. And then... They just want to like play with me. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And then I'm in bed by nine. I tuck them in and I go to bed. That's my exciting life, Kim. I know. But hey, at least you got some action still happening right now. Action. Just a little bit. (laughs) Looking to consolidate your debt? 
in the market to purchase your first home, interested in acquiring an investment property, look no further. More Freedom is here to serve you. We aim to furnish our clients with the power and the confidence over their finances and a sense of accomplishment of taking the first step to get there. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at I Want More Freedom. And you can always connect with us via our website at morefreedom.ca. Who would you say has had made the biggest impression on who you are today? Gotta be my parents, both of them. My dad, who we joke around as half robot, has given me his robot status. <laughs> I'm also a bleeding heart like my mother, but I also have that very like, I have a disciplined side of me that is very much Leonard Moore. Um, watching them, watching my parents move through life, and it's not just the, the immigrant story, which they are very much a part of. It's the fact that they decided to attack life from a positive perspective. And, you know, my mom was not raised with her parents. Her mother died when she was a little girl and her father took off right away and abandoned them to go start his own family in the UK. Um, And my dad had a loving mother and loving siblings. Um, They had no money. Neither family had money. But they never, like, I don't, I, they're not living out. They're not trying to repeat any of that trauma. They have been so hopeful and happy and invested in their kids. And I think that it's a lovely, it's lovely that I have the default of positivity. And I'm pretty sure I got that from them. So the fact that I go back to a happy place or I go back to a setting of it's going to be okay, that's their hardwiring in me. And so, and that is the most important part of me. The fact that I know I'm going to get up again and it's going to be okay eventually. Uh, I get that 100% from them. And um, that's had the biggest, I think, influence on my life. So it's them. Tell us about a time when you felt like you weren't being seen. Um, I definitely was not being seen as an intern. Um, when I started, I, I did not feel that there was any room in the industry for me at all. And I, you know, I, I spoke a little bit about that that tough love conversation I had with a girlfriend and she was like, you know, what, what's happening? And I said, well, no one sees me. I'm sitting in my desk. I'm typing away. I don't know anything. I don't want to ask any questions. And she said, Trey, you're not supposed to know anything. You're an intern. Your literal job right now is to ask questions and learn. And I said to her, yeah, but I feel dumb. And she's like, you are dumb right now. You're supposed to be dumb. Like you are supposed to know nothing. Like you're literally an intern you're supposed to know nothing. Your whole point there is fact finding. That's it. That's all you're supposed to do all day. So why can't you get over yourself and start doing the fact finding? It will not surprise you at all that this girlfriend went from a social worker to a lawyer and she's now a therapist and that's where she belongs. My girlfriend, Sandy, has been giving us all advice since like forever. So that helped it, it told me that I actually make myself, I have to make myself be seen because they're not going to, I'm not blonde. I'm not skinny. I'm not rich. I'm not any of the things that people might pay attention to in a place like a newsroom or anywhere else in society. So 
you're going to have to make yourself be seen. And you can do that by being really smart. You can do that by being really perky. You can do that by being really, you know, nice and charming to people. Figure it out because that's what you're going to have to do. And I would say that the industry has not changed much. I've had to sort of like double elbow charm my way into every situation possible. Um, and I think that I'm, I'm hoping that's going to be a little bit easier for my son and my daughter and for all the generations that come up with the conversations people are happening are having now. But yeah, there are some people in society that are just, we don't get a, like a natural front row seat. So we have to do a lot of um, talking and impressing to get anywhere. Shouldn't be that way, but that's the way it is. Do you feel with the racial reckoning that has happened that we will all still have to go into character in order to achieve the goals that we want to? I think that the millennials and the Gen Zers are flipping it. They're saying, don't code switch. Don't. I mean, millennials already started by coming in to workplaces and saying, okay, I'm here now. I don't love the hours. So if we could switch those, that would be great. And probably in two and a half years, I'm going to get pregnant. I want to make sure I get a full year mat leave. Like what? My parents would freak out if they knew I walked in anywhere and said, let's talk about the time I'm going to be off. But I am so impressed. I am impressed that these generations have realized that you have to go in there and and make it work with your life. Your life is what counts. Everything else is sort of an offshoot of this one life, including your job. So, I, you know, I feel that way for the young Black kids and the, the young Brown kids and the young Indigenous kids. I feel like they're going to say, no, I'm going to go into spaces and you're going to deal with me because this is who I am. Um, I'm sort of in that cusp generation where we're just sort of learning we don't have to be our parents, but then we're not bold enough to be an actual millennial in our thinking, but um, are, are trying to make it work within the bounds of what we're comfortable with. But I don't know if it's always going to be a thing to code switch. Do you think there's a thin line between being yourself and still having to work hard? Because sometimes young people can get it a little bit twisted or get off track and say, well, you know what, because I'm black, hey, I know everyone's looking to fill that quota right now. So I'm here and may possibly think that they don't have to actually put in the work. Do you think that that message could be lost in translation that it's just enough to hit that quota? I'm black, I'm here and I don't have to work as hard. No, it's not enough. It's never going to be enough because first of all, if you're if you're banking on tokenism being around by the time you get into the workplace, you do not know what is going to flip, what different conversations are going to be happening even in 2 years, 3 years, 5 years from now. Secondly, I would say to anyone, there's absolutely no replacement for work. It's my first piece of advice to anyone getting into any industry, I don't care if it's plumbing, or if it's engineering, or if it's journalism, or if you want to be a teacher. For me in the newsroom, what I found was I had to try and be proficient at every single job. And if I wasn't proficient at it, then I had to figure out a workaround. Like I said, I was terrible at assigning the camera group crews. So I, I did everything I could to endear myself to the guys I was working with so that they could help me, or at least be patient with me so I could learn on how to master it. And 
it didn't matter if my job was as an editorial assistant fixing the photocopier because I ultimately have to get that script out and get it to the anchor. Some of the editorial assistants would run away and say, I'm not a photocopy fixer. Yeah, we are. So I was the best fixer of photocopiers ever. That's part of my job description. And I'm going to make it so that every time it's broken and no one else can do it, they're going to look up more tea in the newsroom. And that's going to be another contact for me because I'm the only one that can do it. So it doesn't matter if you are cleaning toilets, if you are walking dogs, if you are learning how to be an astronaut, you have to thrive at every level of that job before you get to the next level. Because number one, it helps you to know every level of the job you're doing. It doesn't matter how small you might think it is. And number two, people notice hard work, especially if you're putting it in front of them and you're saying, I've made myself indispensable. I've made myself so that you cannot go through your day without consulting me because I fix the photocopiers. So I don't think there's any replacement for hard work. It's never going to go anywhere. Do you believe that you see yourself the same way others view you? I do not think I see myself the way the others view me. I've had this conversation uh, a couple of times with a couple of different people. And what I find is because when I walk into a room, I automatically assume equality. And I can be freaked out too if I'm walking into a room of CEOs or senior leadership, um, you know, executives. I know I'm the only person of color. And sometimes I'm the only woman there. It's very obvious to me, but I also feel like they're not that smart. (laughs) Like, I don't know everything and nor do they. So I'm not like, I'm not thrilled by celebrities. I don't love being in situations where I'm email, where I'm interviewing them because they have a whole team telling them that they're special. And I don't have a team telling me that I'm special. I have the opposite of that in this house. So I, and I think that that's great because when I walk into spaces, I automatically assume equality and let's move from there. What I see from other people is that I can't automatically assume equality. So I've been told a few times, you know, even with teams I work in at work, I'm very open to people saying, oh, Tracy, that, you know, I don't know about that idea. I, I don't think we're going to do that. And I'll be like, yeah, whatever. You're right. It was just, listen, I, I thought I'd pitch it. Um, but if I say that to someone else, oh, I don't know about that idea. They're broken. Like, they're like, she hated my idea. This is a big deal. And I didn't realize that it wasn't a, it's not a regular back and forth. I have to have some self-awareness that I'm walking into spaces and people are seeing me as a leader. Like I've always understood that I'm leading, but I didn't understand how that changed the dynamic of a space, how my how it's perceived as power and what that power means. And so I have to be more aware of that now. And I'm starting to be more aware of that now, but, but still understanding that at the end of the day, I really do feel that we're all on equal footing, even though you might not be able to see that right up right from the outset. And I would say through your social media as well, it you you come across as a regular person. And it's not that you're not a regular person, uh, but potentially it's to, for you, you're breaking that mold of the separation that yeah. we tend to feel from celebrities. Yes. And I want like, it, it should go. For someone like me, 
it's, you know, I've had moments in this industry where I thought I should have gone into print. I should have gone into print journalism because no one would know what I look like. And I hate to see people freaked out by me or start acting weird around me. Like, then it makes me weird. I don't know how to act. I'm just like, what do I do with my hands now? My husband will be like, oh my God, they're looking. So I just, I don't love that weirdness. I don't love that. And I feel that we all have, we're all human. So we can all, we're connected in some way. I'm pretty sure we're more similar than different. So yeah, I don't, I'm pretty sure I don't see myself the way other people see me. And that's fine with me because I'm not going to be in this industry forever. At some point I'll be on an island and I'll be on a raft and I will be having a drink in my hand and it'll be a great job and a great career that I did for a while, but it's not everything. I see the retirement plan. Yes. (laughs) I, I would definitely say, and I believe we've chatted about this before, where your humility and how humble you are is not something that you are met with often with people of color that are in a certain status. And Mm -hmm. I knew for you at that point, it was like, really? And it's like, Mm -hmm. yes, like it is very hard. And I feel that for young people, and I will speak on behalf of them now, is that it's sometimes very hard to relate to someone that potentially can look like me that their hand is basically out saying, oh, you're of a different status in a different class. Yeah, I felt that. I felt that when I was coming into the industry, I actually leaned on a Black reporter that, you know, my family holds journalists in fairly high esteem because we're big news readers, my mom and dad. And, um, and when I got to that CTV newsroom, there was a Black reporter there and I managed to weasel my way into her space. And I know I was annoying. I know I was, but I'm this young black girl and I'm trying to learn the ropes and I'm just finding my voice because my girlfriends just had the talk with me. So like I'm being more bold. And I went up to her and I said, you know, is there a way I could shadow you? She's like, oh, well, that's not up to me. That's up to my news director. And I said, okay. So I went to her news director and I said, can I shadow, you know, X, Y, Z? And he said, no problem. She's going to be at such and such a location tomorrow. Meet her in the camera person there. And I went and I know I was probably quiet and awkward and I had no money because I was an intern living with my parents. I had enough, like I had a token to get down to the location, a token to get home. I brought my lunch. So I know I wasn't fun to hang out with, but she was awful. She was awful. And I was supposed to shadow her for two days. And at the end of the first day, I said, well, where should I meet you tomorrow? And she said, that is not happening. And so that sort of speaks to this whole idea of you're Black, you're in a position of power, you could help me, but you choose not to. You're being very stush about it. I'm not feeling good about myself. And we would expect to be able to lean on our community of all people um, and that it, it's a bigger hurt, I think, than you know, sort of being dissed by someone from outside of the community. So. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but Kim, I, I I get it. That is probably what a lot of the youth see. And, that, and I think part of that power dynamic is us being marginalized and being held out for so long. When the few of us get in, the black and brown faces in high places, we lose our minds. Like, you lost your mind. Don't forget who you are, where you come from, that we're all equal, actually, um, and, you know, don't be crapping on your people. I'm, I, 
I don't understand why people move through that, but I also understand that I guess they feel that they're in a privileged position now and they don't need any help from their community anymore. So it's not a great way to move through life, I don't think. Tired of being tired? Seeking to build your self-confidence? Are you feeling uncomfortable in your skin? It's time to move with Kim. Studies have shown that in this era of exponential growth of the metabolic syndrome and obesity, lifestyle modifications have been proven to be one of the most effective ways to improve your health and quality of life. Let's chat about you, your goals, and how we will get you there. Send your inquiries to hello at kimniles.com and let's start conditioning your mental and physical health today. What was your loudest message you received during the pandemic? Um, like the message I received from like externally? Just for just just your experience when the pandemic hit and now we all thought it would have been like a month, two months, three months, okay, six months, and a, a 2021 celebration. We're popping the champagne and we're in the second wave and now the third wave. So what was that? What has that message been for you through this whole process? To be totally honest, it's messed me up more than I thought. It's the biggest message I got that would have been... Um, surprising for me is slow down. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to slow down and you're going to have to start minding yourself differently than you ever have before. So I've always, I feel like I've always been very much on top of my destiny and my health and, you know, what happens in my brain and my thoughts, because I'm, I'm constantly drilling in the messages that I feel are important that my mind and my body accept. And I got to a point during this pandemic where I was just spiraling. There was nothing I could say to myself that was helping. There was nothing I could pull out of my, my resource toolbox that would work. The meditation didn't work. The fitness didn't work. The reading books didn't work like, oh my gosh, when am I going to, I had to go to my bosses and say to them, I have to slow down. I have to, I think I'm going through trauma. Like I feel I'm not okay. I'm crying constantly. Um, I have to get through the show. I have to smile and it's not coming naturally to me. I know I'm not depressed because I've been through postpartum depression. Wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I am off and I'm off in an unpredictable way and I don't know how I'm going to feel from minute to minute. And a lot of that was about the, um, the messages I was getting occupying sort of this new space, talking about race, being embroiled in a high profile, um, you know, racial situation with a, you know, a, a high profile friend that was having a really difficult time dealing with her new position in life based on things she had done and me being dragged through that and not having any control over the narrative. Um, and so the message screamed, you're going to have to do things differently than you've ever done them before. You're going to have to get out of some of your meetings. You're going to have to appear 
weak because that's in my mind what it was. <laughs> you're going to have to appear weak. You're going to have to lean into it. I've since understood that it's not weak, it's survival. And I needed to worry about me first and what I can handle um, because I felt like I was becoming a different person. I wasn't managing anything well. Uh, so yeah, the big message was slow down and you're going to have to sit down and figure out what you actually need to, to get by. One of the questions that came up recently in the classroom was the youth are really struggling with dealing with two pandemics. So Black youth right now, they're dealing with the systemic barriers they're already faced in. So some of them not having the opportunity to live in a home like a house. They're in a small apartment. They're stuck with their siblings. It's already not a good environment. So and then we have the fear of COVID. And also they're ingesting this racial uprising that we're having. What would be a piece of advice that you would give to a young person right now that's witnessing and experiencing all of this and how to get by? I think that there are a lot of messages that we're being bombarded with right now. And I can see how social media can be a uniting force and a great force for community. But I also think because inequality is so loud and clear right now, I mean, access to technology is changing people's now educational experience. The neighborhood you live in is changing your chances of getting COVID or not, having access to a vaccine or not. And it's difficult for me to say this because I understand that their culture is digital, but they have to find a way to either be very digitally literate or to try and self-regulate because I don't feel, I feel that I am being harmed by social media right now. I'm 46 and established. So I cannot imagine, you know, when I say to my daughter and my son, I, I like, you don't want any of this smoke. You don't want Instagram guys. Like you do not need that in your young impressionable mind. And especially now you like if you were holed up in an apartment with your four siblings and you're seeing people in their houses with a pool, who needs that for their mental health? But you don't need that for your mental health. There has to be there. There needs to be a way for them to figure out how to keep relying on their safe spaces and places. So if that is a best friend that they need to sort of just hang out with, if that's a group of friends that make them feel good, that they can play video games with. If it is, you know, trying to find creative outlets, like making fidget spinners or watching happy videos, whatever it is, they need to find what's going to make them happy to sustain this time that we're in sort of this dumpster fire. Because, yeah, it's a, it's an awful time to be living in poverty and also having access to nothing because everything's shut down and then comparing your circumstances to other people. The other thing I would say is for the racial pandemic is they should try to be focused on, on the, um, the pops of hope versus the trauma. And so I, I have to police myself really strongly and what I take in uh, on my phone. And I, I can't even go on Twitter anymore. Twitter's not a safe space for me anymore. So I've sort of left that platform behind. So these kids kind of have to figure out where are the places that make me feel good? Where is the Black community information that fuels me and energizes me? And what are the videos that are making me feel so low 
and so out of control and overwhelmed and what is making me feel like I have no hope and, and try as, as hard as they can to stay away from that stuff and take in more of the good stuff because it's, there's a lot of information and I feel like the, you know, the negativity tends to rule. Such great advice. And one of the things for me last year, when you started City Line Race, mm-hmm. the podcast, mm-hmm. I tuned into it because I felt like I needed to educate myself more on my community, my background, my history. And I also think that's also an awesome resource for young people. I know I've been spreading it out through classrooms for them because you've had some great people on that really educate and they simplify things because sometimes with history, it can seem very complicated, but once simplified and the questions are asked that it, you know, you're able to kind of digest it a little bit different. So I think that the part for me was just learn more about what we're going through, building on that history. Yeah. So Tracy, as we begin to wrap up, what is something that people would never guess about you? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Would people, will you tell me if any of this is surprising? Because I really like, I'm, I'm sort of like this happy party girl, but I'm also serious as a judge. Do you get that contradiction in me when you, when you see me on social media, like how how like regimented I can be. I don't know if people know how regimented I can be. Like I'm very intentional. So, and I think that's part of my, um, that's part of my star sign as a Capricorn. So if I want to find more joy, I'm intentional about finding more joy. If I want to get a promotion, I'm intentional about figuring out how to get a promotion. Everything is a plan. So I've made my life, I plan out, which is why the pandemic has been so hard. I plan out my life so that I make sure I have these open spaces where I can go and party like a wild woman with my girlfriends. Like that's intentional. That's part of my plan. Um, If I need something to come into existence, I will be the one to plan the thing to come into existence. I don't fool around with my birthday. I'm not waiting for people to surprise me. I plan my birthday, Kim. I know what I want for my birthday. I know what I want to eat. I know the presents I want. I will get them for myself. No one has to get them for me. I know what I want to do. I know who I want to see. Like I push the narrative that I want to see. And so I feel like people might might look at my social media and think, oh, she's just like, go with the flow. I don't go with the flow. I don't go with the flow. The only flow I will go with is flow that has been like, there's been intentional space made for that flow. And then within that intentional space, I can let go. But I think that um, people might not know that side of me because my husband's always saying, if people knew you're putting out the kids' backpacks and your garment bag and your two waters with lemon waiting for you to drink and your panty and your gym clothes is folded and right beside the toilet. Like if people knew, I'm like, that's just who I am. I don't know. But there's something to definitely be said for that organization. Cause that's in a sense how you find balance. I have to have it. I feel like life is all over the place. If I have not organized things and, and, and the bottom line is if you don't plan, it's going to go sideways. Like it's not going to work out. It's not going to be what you want it to be unless you are intentional about making it that way. So I want to make sure I work out. So yeah, the clothes is there, the panties there. It's ready for me to put on after I brush my teeth. And if it's not there, the workout's not going to happen. 
Tracy, thank you so much for being so authentic and just for being you. It's, it's very rare that you find someone that is able to be themselves and own it and not have to always be looking over their shoulders to think, what do they think? Because I guess the real, the real message there is, is that people are always going to think they're always going to have an opinion. So thank you so much for being you. Thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you for the path that you've paved. And what I would love for you to leave our viewers with is what would your message be to your younger self? My message to my younger self would be, gosh, that's a really good, (laughs) I think it would be to focus more on my development and worry a little bit less about the people around me because they're actually not as invested as I think they are in anything I'm doing. Like I, I, you couldn't pay me to go back to high school and it was a great experience, but I don't ever want to be that self-conscious again. So if I could speak to little Tracy, it would be, you know, I was like probably 80% spitfire and 20% constantly looking over my shoulder. What do they think? What do they think? Try and narrow that 20% and really pursue what you feel is right in your heart of hearts, because that is the only way you're actually showing up with the power that you should have on this earth. Like be true to yourself. And I know that's a lesson we all have to learn and, and it evolves over time, but the quicker we get it, the better the outcome is going to be and the more you can live an authentic life. You've been listening to the Make Your Mark podcast. You can visit our website and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at makeyourmark.ca and please subscribe, rate, and review.